Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Open podcast. My name is Dr. Romain Gadarab and I'm one of the two digital content editors of the BJ Psych Open along with Dr. Piyush Pushkar. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Professors Richard Williams and Kenneth Kaufman, authors of the narrative review of the COVID-19 healthcare and healthcarers thematic series here at the BJ Psych Open. It goes without saying that this is a really important theme for the BJ Psych Open to have covered, and it's one of many important learnings, which we're soon going to get into. So before I delve into the issue, can I formally introduce my guests? So we have Professor Richard Williams, who's a Professor Emeritus of Mental Health Strategy at Welsh Institute for Health and Social Care, and the Presidential Lead for COVID-19 Emergency Preparedness and Mental Health to the Royal College of Psychiatrists as well as the Director of Psychosocial and Mental Health Programme for the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And then we have Professor Kenneth Kaufman. He's a Professor of Psychiatry, Neurology and Anesthesiology at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and a Visiting Professor at the Department of Psychological Medicine at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College London, and is of course the Editor-in-Chief of the BJ Psych Open. That was quite a lot there. So thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Pleasure. pleasure. So as we're all very aware, the coronavirus pandemic um, has and continues to have a huge impact on us individually and to our society. However, it also completely disrupted the field of research and some areas excelled, such as the creation of the vaccine and others suffered. So, for example, some of the research I've been working on has been put back about two years behind where it should be. Um, and lots of mental health research has been cancelled altogether. And I read recently that even by the end of just 2020, that there were maybe over 200,000 coronavirus-related academic papers and preprints published. So I kind of wanted to know how it was curating this theme from a no-doubt huge array of submissions and what might have been like to be an editor-in-chief during this time. Remain to answer this, I must put it in perspective as a senior academic psychiatrist, as well as the editor-in-chief of BJ Psych Open, I first considered the need for global psychiatric response in March of 2020. And with Eva Pitkova, Cambu, and Thomas Schultz, published an editorial in the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled, A Global Needs Assessment in Times of a Global Crisis, World Psychiatry Response to the COVID-19 Pandemic. We considered the key challenges for psychiatry that required urgent attention to ensure the mental health and well-being for all, COVID-19 patients, healthcare professionals, first responders, people with psychiatric disorders, and the general population. Prior to any publications regarding the psychiatric, psychosocial aspects of COVID-19, we emphasized that mental health care should be an integral component of healthcare policy and practice towards COVID-19 noted that this must be regarded as a major public health imperative. In essence, any official response to a pandemic like COVID-19 without a psychic component would violate a government's prime duty to ensure the health and safety of society. There are multiple core themes that needed and still need to be addressed. Dissemination of knowledge, clinical care, appreciation of both our patients and healthcare providers perspectives, and the long-term effects on the psychic and general population. While Richard has been a key academic during prior pandemics and disasters, my approach to COVID-19 remains much more personal. How and why? 
I viewed this pandemic as a global health disaster and compared this to the disaster for which I was a psychiatric responder. I recall being in the ER on the evening of 9-11 into the wee hours of the next morning, arriving home after 4 a.m., being notified by my wife that my neighbor needed to speak with me immediately. I learned that he was away from the World Trade Center towers for a central Manhattan meeting and witnessed trapped tower workers jumping to their death. For greater than 20 years, I have cared for 9-11 survivors and first responders. Acute distress, depression, and anxiety symptoms have blossomed into chronic PTSD, major depression, and anxiety disorders. Though over extended time, these decline in severity for the general population, a recent longitudinal study noted increasing prevalence of PTSD amongst rescue recovery workers. And this, of course, one should consider in light of what will happen to healthcare workers over the ensuing 20 years from COVID-19. Which brings us to COVID-19. My first goal was to publish initial snapshots of early mental health response to COVID-19. Though initial cross-sectional studies have methodological weaknesses with lack of generalizability, they can enlighten us of acute current symptoms, not diagnoses, pretend what might come, and through discussions of limitations and strengths, lead to improved longitudinal research. As the IEC, I've dealt with many COVID submissions impacting mental health of the general population, healthcare staff, and specific subpopulations. I found this an important editorial and scientific educational process, which has led the journal towards a more critical review process as the pandemic now enters its third year. As both editor-in-chief and clinician, I recognize the need for population studies but mirroring 9-11, I also recognize the need to address the effects on healthcare workers and healthcare systems. I view, the thematic, this, I view this thematic series as just the beginning. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, let me just add to that and say, Ken, I think we learned a huge amount, didn't we, from 9-11. It's a very different type of disaster, um, catastrophe even because it was, it all happened on one day, except that it didn't. The events took place on one day, but the aftermath for people has gone on ever since. It really is quite um, staggering. But what that has introduced us to is just how long and sometimes delayed are the mental health and psychiatric impacts on people. And so when you look at a disaster um, of the nature of a pandemic, which is ongoing, continuous, lasts many, many days. And when I first got involved, I thought this is an event that has the prospect of going on for years. Um, how so sorry I am that I was right. Um, but how do humans cope with that kind of continuing disaster? Is it the same or is it different? And the advice that we gave was based uh, to the authorities, was based on the best that we could muster from discontinuous uh, disasters. Um, and that served us well. But we still have to answer the question, what will be the cumulative impacts? Uh, do you have a sort of, from your experience of 
uh, kind of Richard, as you kind of mentioned before, that this isn't your first pandemic that you've no. experienced. And um, you were saying to me before we started recording, I'm guessing, I'm kind of thinking, what is that time frame where you think we'll, we'll really understand the mental health impacts? Could you gauge that from previous pandemics? Yes. I mean, one of the things I've done over the years is to read what was in the public domain. And um, there's a seminal book called Pale Rider, written by a, uh, a specialist medical journalist, who, which is a seminal piece of work. And really, it's a really impactful introduction because it talks about the Spanish flu, a misnomer if ever there was one, but that arguably killed 50 million people, possibly more. And of course, in those days, we didn't even know that that was flu and it was caused by a virus. Um, but the basic public health measures are written down in the, in the history of, of that event. And so we could see that there was a propensity for things to go through Oh, three or more phases of waves, and uh, that large numbers of members of the public would be affected. So, yeah, um, the last one I was involved in was the flu pandemic, the H1N1 flu pandemic of 2009-10, when I was directly involved in advising Department of Health about the conduct of interventions for that. And it, it, it struck me then just how much we need to look back at that and say we were lucky that time. We were well prepared, but um, a lot of those preparations weren't wholly necessary. This time, I sense we were underprepared and a lot of the preparations we might have made were thin. So, yeah, it's, um, each pandemic is different, but I think the impacts... Um, well, only time will tell us what they are. There are clearly ways in which people react to the immediate events that take place. For most of us, that was being curtailed in our own houses, um, having our liberty restricted, which is quite a devastating thing for people. Those of us in psychiatry know that only too well from the, the ways in which our patients cope with being detained. But that, that's a very different quality than whole echelons of society being restricted in their movements. And clearly, there were a lot of um, a lot of people who were very distressed by that. And the distress wasn't evenly distributed across the population. But perhaps we'll come back to that. No, so I think there are a number of phases, and it's only now that I think we're beginning to think uh, we need to prepare everybody, the country, the services, everything else, for what I think will be a much bigger impact at the psychological, psychosocial and psychiatric levels of this pandemic, which is, of course, still ongoing. In most of the countries of the world, um, it remains a very big problem, though we kind of feel that we might be at a junction point in the UK. That itself is not clear. Let me stop there. <laughs> no, that was, that was great, Richard. Thank you so much. Um, actually, I think that's that's quite a good start into delving into some of the themes that are really kind of themes that were emerging um, from the whole series. So I think that comparison with our how our patients might feel when they're being detained 
to large amounts of society having to experience kind of that isolation and being detained in their own house and fear, um, you know, I think was huge. And I think that was one of the big themes that came out, like you were saying, the kind of impact on the public of having to lock down and also having to adhere to kind of these precautionary measures that we've never had to take before. Um, Could you maybe, either of you, tell us a little bit more about that, the findings that kind of came out through the papers? Yes, I mean, I think um, some of the papers are quite interesting in that regard. I made a comment earlier that the effects of lockdown, etc., and w- weren't distributed evenly across the population. And this brings us to what we know of the social causes of, of mental ill health. My uh, mum has been going on about that for a long time. Um, the social causes of ill health. And and this has been shown in huge terms during this pandemic, that it's one thing to lock people down. But coping with that, and of course we're in a position now to cope with it much better than we might have done before because of the joys of modern electronics. Um, we've only had access to... Um, conferencing facilities. So my work continued substantially unabated, but that wasn't true for everybody. Um, What was it like for families with children who couldn't go to school, um, who were locked down in small premises of inadequate housing and who who didn't have funds that they could buy um, electronic devices and couldn't afford to connect themselves to the internet? That's where I think the polarisation of our society has been shown up by this event in no uncertain terms. And you've got, and they think those impacts, this what I call this socioeconomic trajectory of impact has become so noticeable. And that's perhaps one of the, I hesitate to say good things, but if you understand what I mean, it's, There is a side to this pandemic, which it's brought us face to face with some of the realities. Um, We've had to face uh, the different circumstances that people from ethnic minority backgrounds have faced. Uh, uh, Children from more deprived families have faced. And it really is um, a huge, huge um, learning point that we can't eclipse. So in, in one sense, I think we've learned so much. But we've also seen huge goodness from people. Um, in my own area in Bristol, where I live, we've watched people rally around charities, um, individual people who've collected materials together, um, used computers, refurbished them, um, provided free of charge access to the internet. Um, so what we've also seen, a really grand side to some people. And I don't think we should um, forget that. We need to put the whole thing in perspective, in my view. People are more good than bad, in my experience. And, uh, and people are, by that I mean that people are more um, altruistic and giving and supporting of each other than they are necessarily selfish. Um, and that's a quality that we've got to learn to exploit and develop, it seems to me, in modern society. Richard, when you comment on the social trajectory, 
The issue that comes to mind is the fact that we're really dealing with policy issues over time. We are. It's critical that, that you raise this issue, and it's unfortunate, but it's, it's too obvious that it's there. But this actually makes us ask the basic question, what policies will change over time, both quickly and over an extended period of time? Are we willing to do that? Yeah, I think we as psychiatrists probably bump as much as any other specialties, perhaps possibly and arguably more than some specialties, into the, the small p politics of, of, of healthcare, of society, and all these things. It's something we can't ignore. It's there. And we have, we have an, I think, um, an important responsibility to speak out about some of these matters. Which is why I was very keen that we included these social trajectory issues in the narrative review. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because I think if we only just underline what so many other people have researched, we are acting as a potent source of dissemination of that kind of knowledge. But maybe we need to go further than that. It's the sort of dilemma that, that faces psychiatrists in all sorts of arenas of their work, is it not? But, um, I mean, I've spent a lot of my time during the pandemic working with the people at the front line, people in intensive care units and people who um, can't say no. They are in accident and emergency departments. They're in a pre-hospital specialist medical care and although it's thought of as glamorous of turning up in a fast car or a helicopter or something, it's not that glamorous when you get down to what you face. And helping those people to cope with the ghastly situations we've faced of um, stacking ambulances at the doors of hospitals and things like that, I've seen as an important part of, of the ethic that I've kind of taken on here. But, you know... Um, I think there's a social side to a lot of what we do. There's a policy side. And I don't think we should be too scared of recognising those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry if this question's going a bit a bit off-piste, but too many of the psychiatrists, psychologists and other, other people listening to this podcast, what are things they can maybe do to speak out, like you were saying, or to be heard? Because it can, it can feel difficult sometimes when you're seeing this and you're experiencing this and you're reading about it um, to work out what you can do to, to maybe influence policy. You're 100% right. Um, it was recognising that years and years ago um, when the facilities in Bristol, um, the psychiatric facilities for young people, particularly adolescents, were so poor that, why, that we felt that um, I felt I had to export myself to a place of greater influence. It's why I got involved with the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the first place, because I thought that there might be a platform from which you could speak um, on a broader base and with great authority um, or greater authority um, from which people could not disqualify you. Or they could, but perhaps with more difficulty than if you were just a lone voice. Um, so maybe people need to think about what really matters to them, what it is that they've learnt from their patients and from their work um, that they might want to speak out about, <coughs> and 
find vehicles for doing that in a way in which their colleagues can support and join with them. It's important, I think, the group aspect of this, of having a social group to support you with some of these things is critical. Going it alone is more, much, much more difficult. Thank you. Obviously, Ken, I appreciate your across the water from us. Is there anything that's maybe different happening over in the US or that you would you'd advise? Well, unfortunately, we're probably not following the playbook that we had written years before uh, in our pandemic books. We did they exist, but we didn't use them. Uh, and uh, I guess the best issue would be the best phrase would be we're regretting it now. Uh, we've witnessed over time too many cases, too many deaths, as has occurred in England and other countries, significant disruption in our lives. At the same time, it shouldn't be forgotten that regardless of the issue of social trajectory and the problems with those who are, have deprivation, some individuals have found personal growth uh, during the pandemic. And I think one of the papers that we published in address such. So there are types of silver linings that can come all sorts of tragic issues. Hopefully they're going to learn from this and do better in the future. But we, we're going to find out over time because as Richard clearly stated, this is not going away overnight. Talked about different variants and yet be further variants to come. And people need to be aware of that. I did before, Romain, about uh, adherence we need to understand what is important for us for basically society. Talked about policy before, you know, you, there's both the clinical ethics, there's public health ethics, but there's also political ethics. And they don't always match, but we have to do the best that we can to try to get things out there so people understand what is occurring, what might be best for society on a long-term basis. Mm -hmm. um, there are fortunately different institutions which have set up large ongoing longitudinal research programs and hopefully from that we will learn a lot more but I think this will take place over time of course, of course. as Richard commented about the advantages of speaking from rural college of psychiatrists I would also uh, comment that in being involved with the journal I get the ability to be able to see articles and try to get them disseminated, assuming the quality is appropriate. And out of that, hopefully, we'll do better things over time. And I guess as we're going to go through the rest of this podcast, we're going to realize the limitations on the original research, what needs to be done in the future. Of course. Yeah, I would love to talk about that maybe um, a little bit further on. I think that's such a strength of this kind of thematic issue, like you're saying, is it the, the issue does explore things like potential mental mental health difficulties, shall we say, that people have had due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So post-traumatic stress disorder, some uh, papers talking about increased levels of adjustment disorder, depression. But like you were just both alluding to, it's kind of a term that I wasn't really familiar with, um, thinking about this post-traumatic growth where some people actually had positives and obviously that wasn't for everyone, but in, in one study, particularly a high number of people, I think it was in Portugal, um, yeah, said that they experienced things like improved relationships. And um, yeah, I don't know if you have. I mean, I've heard people saying 
that they have got good things out of being corralled with their family. <clears throat> um, well, maybe not everybody. <laughs> but not everybody. And, 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 and <laughs> you can have too much of a good thing, perhaps. Um, I'm not trying to be jesting about this, but the intensity of relationships, I think, is an interesting feature in this. Often our relationships are not intense enough and therefore not satisfying, but equally they can be over-demanding of us. But um, So it would be interesting to revisit those families again um, several years on to see whether they would still claim um, post-traumatic growth. The interesting thing from my looking at post-traumatic growth over the years, and it first really flowered in my imagination in discussions with a Spanish colleague uh, back in ooh, about 2010, I had a lengthy conversation with a man I'm thinking of. And it seems to me that A, we've underestimated this uh, as an occurrence, but it's not independent of the suffering that people have. That the more stimulated people that are by distress, by symptoms of possible mental disorders, there is a kind of, um, you need that kind of stimulation to get the growth out of it, it occurs to me. And the two are often intertwined. If you go, if you're too um, provoked by um, symptoms, then, the, the, then that kind of post-traumatic growth doesn't occur in my experience. But equally being non-stimulated by the circumstances doesn't provoke you to growth either. So it's a complex phenomenon that we still ill understand, is what I'd say. Thank you, of course. And, and obviously, we were, I, I think I was jesting a bit in the beginning, but of course, we're, we're all too aware of very hard difficulties like domestic violence and things like that that Indeed. have been happening. Um, so obviously, I want to mention that. It, do you know, we've known this for some time, uh, and it's not often talked of is that difficulties in domestic relationships and violence between close people are recorded after single incident disasters, just as they are after a very different kind of disaster that a pandemic represents. There was quite a lot of research showing that after 9-11, for instance. And it's something when I teach on courses, I'd always draw to people's attention, is if you get too focused on what happened and how people cope with that, you might miss out on some other important findings that may be as detrimental, if not more, in some instances. Thank you. I guess the next sort of theme I wanted to delve into was thinking a bit more about the effects and the impacts of the pandemic on the healthcare services and their staff, um, because a, a large number of the papers obviously kind of focus on that. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the key findings? Well, I think the first thing to to appreciate is um, just how serious the pressure is that our health services in the UK have been under. Um, Those people who have been in it um, know that only too well. Um, But a lot of people don't understand that. It really has taken many of our staff to the edge of their tolerance is my sense of things. And we coped reasonably well, though under huge pressure with the first wave, 
But as it came to a close, that solidarity and that mobilization of support, which came about almost spontaneously. Remember the days when we'd stand on our doorsteps on a Thursday night and clap? They disappeared in June in 2020, and they haven't returned. And we, of course, we know about this, what we call the support mobilization and the support deterioration phase. We know about in relationship to other types of event, single incident disasters and major incidents. But we didn't know what would happen in this pandemic. Um, and I didn't know whether that would turn out to be a wave thing or whether it would be a one-off. And it's turned out to be a one-off because as each wave has come, we've not seen a recrudescence of the support mobilization. And in fact, it's been a, feels to me like an accumulated downhill trek for a lot of staff. So by the time we got to the end of the second wave, I think a lot of the staff, particularly the nursing staff, were kind of cleaned out by their experiences. And as we say in the paper, you could almost feel the fatigue. It was a fatigue of a strange kind, really. It's not just tiredness that's gone um, um, haywire, but it's it's much it's it's different to that. It's qualitatively quite different. Um, and you think of the privations. Um, I've had nurses talking to me about when the PPE was short in supply. Um, um, the, the altruism they showed, particularly in that first wave, was truly enormous. Um, some of them said to me, do you know, I didn't take my break this morning. So I've been in this PPE for um, nine or 10 hours now because I didn't like to because I thought, well, I'd have to throw it away and put on a new set. And if it's in short supply, maybe it wouldn't, there wouldn't be enough for tomorrow. And you think that people voluntarily do those kind of things and put themselves at risk. And they, so I said, well, haven't you actually been to the toilet then? Well, no, I've restricted my intake, so I didn't need to. And you think, people think about these things. They've gone to enormous lengths. I, you know, I take my hat off to people who really go beyond. Um, and that's the sort of thing that was coming through loud and strong as we got into beginning to write this paper. And it hasn't gone away. Um, but we find that people, are, the reluctance in people to go back and do it again. Um, as people said to me at the beginning of the second wave, we didn't want to go again, or we found it hard to. But they did. And the nurse said in a television interview uh, uh, only the other night um, on the news, um, well, uh, there may be another variant and we may have to go through this again. I don't want to do that, but I suppose I shall have to. Because people feel the pressure of their, of their profession. Um, and that's a shame that people feel in that sense. Some people have opted out and said, no, I'm, I'm leaving. Some people have gone sick in between the... And, you know, that's another series of reasons as to why healthcare services are under truly enormous and staggering pressure. Um, and I think we need to talk about these things because, A, we need politicians and managers to understand just what it's like to be involved. 
but we also need the public to understand and to forgive us for our shortcomings, um, which aren't really shortcomings at all, in my view. They're kind of the consequences of being overtasked. Richard, you're, you're commenting on important themes because it's not just the UK, but also US and other countries where nurses have been overwhelmed, frustrated, and uh, sadly, um, quitting the profession, or that some of them can't handle any longer, yep. or they're, so they're supported adequately. Um, I think in the Murray paper, it addressed the uh, ongoing healthcare, I should say, crisis that's been going on in England prior to this pandemic. It has not yet been adequately addressed. And that's another thing of critical importance, I think you've brought up there, Ken. Imagining that we went into this pandemic, um, and I think in most countries this would be the case, uh, with a beautifully resourced and settled healthcare service is wrong. Um, that was plainly the case in my vision of things in the UK. We went into this from a, a, a place of huge staff disgruntlement um, and ill feeling about the lack of resources, um, et cetera, et cetera. I, I won't go on at length about that because we do so in our other podcast. But I think um, and so a lot of these issues have made coping um, so much more difficult. And yet those what I call secondary stresses, these circumstantial things um, have turned up as being critical to a lot of the staff, but they're still there and we have still to face them. And imagining the health service is somehow being cured by its, um, its exposure to the pandemic is incorrect too. Uh, we have got to get people to take seriously the under-resourcing and the over-commitments of staff if we are to have a good quality health service to emerge into. Those are some of the kind of looser findings. They aren't necessarily what the published papers show, of course, because so many of the published papers focus on symptoms rather than social and professional processes. And that's not to say there's inherently something wrong with them. It was a starting point. A lot of the papers we have reviewed in this um, narrative are from the first year of the pandemic. And we hoped we could see a greater diversity of research methodology um, subsequently. And I think both Ken and I want to add to this uh, series of papers as we become more sophisticated and understand some of these really quite difficult questions better. So if people, people who hear this podcast, who read the paper, look at the series, must not think that somehow that's it. This is the last word. No, as Ken has said, this is the first word. And, and I think we've, we need to monitor this and see how we learn the lessons and what we do with them um, into the future. Um, I don't know if that's kind of helpful, but, you know, people can read the paper and they can, our narrative review, and they can look at the papers that are summarised in it and glean their own findings. Uh, I think that's probably better. But uh, I think another feature that I'd like to draw attention to is just those couple of papers near to the end of our narrative review. 
in which we look at the impact on people who endeavour to support their colleagues. That is not without its cost either, as those papers are beginning to suggest. One of the papers, I think really quite a good one, looks at the kind of advice that healthcare staff were given as the pandemic started. And it shows that our tuning of that advice to what the healthcare staff wanted by advice was not wholly accurate. Um, And it just reminds me that the whole business is a job of co-creation and collaboration. And I think that's another lesson we've learned. But we also need to protect people who volunteer themselves to work with their colleagues and to ensure they're supported as well. So who cares for the carers, I think, is a a very important question that comes out of this. And maybe that's something that ought to have been there all along. But certainly uh, this pandemic allows us to focus on that a bit more than perhaps we might otherwise. Do you have thoughts about that, Ken? I mean, but, but the issue about caring for the carers is really critical, um, mm-hmm. especially for psychiatrists caring for individuals who are having issues dealing with the pandemic, meaning the healthcare providers, because that's actually lacking in the United States, uh, at least in my viewpoint. I mean, at some level, it's being done, but I don't think as much as should be. And I know that some of the colleagues I've spoken to has spent a lot of time, a lot of effort in trying to help others. And at the end of the day, they feel somehow that nobody's thinking about them. It's sad when you hear somebody say that, but that's there. Um, There's another point to mention that we we don't have papers about, but ought to be considered. And that is in the process of this um, pandemic, we've put off healthcare for many of our normal services. And by so doing, we've disrupted the morbidity and mortality from those illnesses. And because of such, this will impact the mental being, perhaps psychic status of individuals and of families. Um, and I hope that over time, this is looked at and appropriate research is done. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. Thank you. Um, Ken, I think you wanted to, or I wanted to ask you more about some of the limitations to the research, um, because oh. we do have these fabulous 22 papers that delve into so many different things around this theme of COVID-19. But what do you think some of the limitations might mm-hmm. be at this stage? For me, especially as an editor, this is perhaps one of the most important topics to consider. For what scientific journals publish informs not simply the scientific community, but the public, and may also have influence on policy. Thus, it's important to compare the methodologic rigor of our initial publications and compare this against what we desire as, gold sta- as a gold standard. As noted in our narrative review of this series, there are multiple limitations uh, which are being addressed as this journal moves forward with regards to how it views future submissions. It's important to appreciate that we have gone through many phases associated with the pandemic, with more yet to come. We've talked about it already, but the primary, the initial lockdown, primary and secondary stressors, lack of PPE, high mortality rates, 
They consider easing restrictions multiple ways, further variants with the current restrictions. Um, it keeps on going. Clearly, there's a time course to these events and associated impact on both general and healthcare provider mental health as well as healthcare system itself. Yet the quickly published findings, as occurred with the original papers in the first year, all of the submissions had inherent limitations. Many of our initial submissions were online cross-sectional surveys. This involved convenience as opposed to cohort sampling and bias. Early studies and even some studies that go on for a bit uh, have lacked control groups. Psychometric scales not necessarily intended for specific diagnoses were utilized and authors inferred diagnosis when they were really referring to symptoms. Some scales were not yet validated for specific countries, cultures, and languages impacting responses. Since participants completed surveys blindly, we have no answer as to their state of mind or other environmental factors that might have impacted why they might answer in a particular way. And as such, uh, Richard, I believe you would comment that uh, there was greater noise due to greater variability. That, that's right. I mean, I think um, we don't know um, anything much about the people who took part in many of these surveys. Most of them haven't been allowed to speak freely and to say what were the things that bothered them most. So the discourse has been controlled, if you like, by the questions asked. And I can imagine a circumstance in which somebody is very distressed and is keen to get that over. And so they find uh, in a questionnaire something approximates to how they feel. So uh, this to me is a possible reason as to why uh, questionnaire-based research tends to yield more substantial suggestions of diagnoses or possible diagnoses than does clinical research. It's, you know, we've been doing some, completing some work um, only this week on the, uh, on the Manchester bombings. Very interesting um, pieces of work, and, but where we um, were very keen to allow the people who used the services to describe themselves. So this either narrative or, uh, or qualitative research I think is also important. I'm very keen to see people embraced mixed methods approaches much more keenly. So we've got a couple of papers in this narrative series which attempt to do that. Do. And it's quite interesting to see how the, the survey findings and the narrative findings don't necessarily concur. They don't. So if you look at the narrative findings, you'd think people are doing quite well. If you look at the survey, they seem to be doing less well than you thought. Um, so I think we always need to be thinking about providing a mechanism for allowing other subjects of research, our participants who give so much, uh, to enable it to happen, to actually speak for themselves, which is, I think is interesting. But to get back to what I was trying to say regarding limitations, all these limitations lead to lack of generalizability as well as impacting ability to establish causality. We don't really have causality from our papers. However, these limitations do not mean that the articles presented lack meaning. They gave us 
and necessary early snapshot allowing us to consider what future research should address, be it mental health and well-being, psychiatric symptoms versus diagnoses, which are very different, suicide rates, impact of sociodemographic factors we need to consider our most vulnerable populations, primary and secondary stressors, adherence to behavioral mitigation, moral injury, stigma, and the impact of psychic medications and COVID, among other things. These initial papers point to greater appreciation of our research limitations. We now can better address these limitations with the following. Longitudinal studies with appropriate sampling and control groups, focused research questions, sensitive and validated instruments. Further, and this is a point that Richard made, these papers highlight the lack of mixed methods research that can be so rich to our better understanding of COVID-19. Quantitative data is essential, but perhaps the most meaningful is qualitative data, for the latter puts it all into context. And the context is critical. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. With 22 papers um, as part of the theme, I think I could probably talk to you both for the rest of the afternoon <laughs> slash into the evening. So um, we, we probably can't do that. So I guess I just wanted to give you both a, a kind of final opportunity to maybe um, give our listeners what to you are the take home messages or something that you particularly want the listeners to remember with regard to this special issue? The thing I'd like to focus on um, is the importance of people's relationships. What has become clear to me very powerfully during the course of the pandemic in talking to lots and lots of people on the front line um, who've done enormously important work and by and large coped rather well with it, not always, and not for everyone, but it's just how powerful is the social support they get from peers, from the teams, and having a cohesive team is so important, I think, to the quality of the work done, the safety of our patients, and uh, the safety of our practitioners. I can't stress that enough. Similarly, we need to think widely about what a team is. For instance, I was talking to a facilities manager who, who, whose job was to keep the ICU going at the peak of the pandemic when, um, when we didn't have enough ICU beds to get people patients into. And keeping the plumbing going was a critical feature. So the plumber who came into the unit to sort things out, was a key member of that team, as were the ward clerks. So it's not just the clinicians. So I think we need to think about teams, about corporate support, um, meaning, or collective support, meaning the kind of support we get from groups. Um, and, and we need to think about how we can research that too. But, so that's my take-home point. Thank you. Ken? I guess my take-home point is that we're only at the beginning. Um, you do not yet have the necessary later larger-scale studies to override the initial snapshots. Not necessarily that some of the snapshot findings are wrong, but they, may, they probably are incomplete. Okay? What we really need are the longitudinal studies, and then we can better comment on what was initially published, what truly is accurate. 
And we need to appreciate that we will be dealing with the psychiatric, psychosocial, economic effects of this for many years to come. Be very supportive of each other. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you um, for giving up your time today to speak to us about this really important um, thematic issue. Just as a reminder to our listeners, um, you can read uh, read Ken and, and Richard's narrative review. It's called a narrative review of the COVID-19 healthcare and healthcarers thematic series, um, which uh, gives a really great summary of these 22 papers, which you can all read in the BJ Psych Open. Um, thank you to all for listening to the BJ Psych Open podcast. For latest updates, please follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. And to listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych journal portfolio, just visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Um, thank you to everybody who's been listening. And thank you so much for taking part today. I really appreciate it. I mean, thank you very much. Thank you.